Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Close Reads is a podcast for the incurable reader and all of us, right, guys? <laughs> I've been right. trying. That was a new. That was a new. I know. I was been... a little unnerving. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out: is there a way we can work in a podcast for the incurable reader in the intro? And then I completely forgot about it until the sentence second I was saying that sentence. So I just kind of added in a little amendment to my sentence. <laughs> That is like the running joke that we have in my family about when mom tells a story. Because I always say, I honestly start a sentence and I have no idea where it's going. And when I get to the end, I am just as surprised as everyone else where I ended up. Once upon a time, early on in the, the time we were doing podcasts on here at Cersei, like before podcasts were such a big thing, I would, I wasn't, we were, I was kind of feeling my way through it. So I would like write out a script and then I would try to make it sound natural. And then that got time Welcome consuming. Welcome to Close Reads. <laughs> I am your host, David Kerrn. <laughs> well, no, the making it natural thing, I think I did okay on, but the time that it took to write those things was just brutal. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. My first, I still have my notebooks of the first few episodes where I, I remember I had like seven pages of Flannery O'Connor notes and I <laughs> did the whole episode with a pen in my hand. And every time we said something, I'd flip, I'd find it, I'd put a check mark through it. And I was just like making sure I got everything. And it was later talking to your dad that I said, Man, I don't know if I can keep up with this schedule. And I was like, this is a lot of work of reading and researching and taking notes. And he said, okay, you got to stop all of that. Yeah. So now and I have you? Reads like a first read. Yes. First oh, read. Okay. Boom. Well, I don't even know who Marilyn Robinson is. I could not be more blind right now. Well, and I'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. So uh, as Angelina is alluding to there, we are going to be talking about um, Angel. Um, yeah. No, I did not. <laughs> Marilyn Robinson's. <laughs> See, you. I did not write that line there. I just Pulitzer Prize winner Angelina Stanford. We can go with that. Hey, that may that's yet to be. That's, I, I <laughs> the prophet within me sees that in your future. Um, I'm not really a prophet, so don't trust that. Um, so we're here to read Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize winning novel Gilead from 2004. Um, before we do that, though, we should take care of a little bit of business. Thanks to everyone who went out and subscribed to the Close Reads feed. We will be, um, we're going to give you guys one more week to do that. And then uh, for the next episodes, we will um, choose the winner of the mug. Um, so please head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to just the Close Reads feed. And then let us know over on Facebook that you did it. Leave a review, uh, both a start and a comment review, if you would, over on iTunes. Um, I've been looking at the numbers this week, and the numbers are trending up. Um, a few of our podcasts have jumped in way up into the numbers and their categories so thanks to everyone who's been listening um uh little shout out over to cindy rollins because the mason jar just took this week took the number one spot in the k-12 through education category so that's pretty cool no way top 20 top 20 in all education podcasts so that's pretty cool um those things fluctuate a little bit based on when content's released um so if you check now i don't know that it's gonna be exactly there but um so she's had a couple of good episodes in a row that i think you know we're really good and, and close reads is climbing uh the close reads podcast i can't tell exactly where it is right now because the idea of the new feed the separate feed itself is new and most people are listening in the the regular network uh feed so we'll see how that goes over the next few months but thanks so much to everyone who's been listening that we can really feel um the the excitement over this show um like the, the conversations on the facebook page and the emails we're getting and um just the people, the number of people that are listening and reviewing, it's it's pretty cool. We did not just ask people to review us just so that we would feel good like that, but it has worked out that way. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, thanks also to our sponsors of the Podcast Network this month. Um, if you've been listening, you know who they are. Um, Scully Academy from Classical Academic Press has been sponsoring. I be- literally thought that's where you were going to stop. And I was like, that's the worst advertising <laughs> I have ever heard. You, you know, know who, who they are. are. That's it. Thank you to them. You know who they are. But no, Scholar Academy from Classical Academic Press has been sponsoring. Um, they are bringing four, uh, well, no, I guess two classes from Tim McIntosh um, this upcoming fall. And Tim, can you remind me what those classes are again? Since, I'd be glad to, yeah, David. They, I'd be so glad to. There was a little bit of an uh, adjustment. So the, the stuff that I had memorized just went out the window after last week's amendment that you made to, your, to, the, to, the, read, to the read-through. Two classes. We're doing classic ancient... playwright right here. Just like last minute script changes yeah, on David. Exactly. The talent can't would... handle this, Tim. I know, I want to tell a story after I say after I talk about my classes. I want to talk about like the worst offense I've ever heard from a playwright about that. It's a really great story. Okay, but that's first, perfect. Let's talk about my classes. <laughs> uh, great books one through the Scholae Academy. Great books one is ancient Greek and Roman literature and history. Great Books 2 is medieval and Renaissance literature and history. So seminar-style classes online, um, students will read, show up to class, we'll discuss them I mean, together. ostensibly they'll show up to class. They, they, they better show up to class. <laughs> that, would be, that would make no sense to not show up to class. Um, <laughs> Tim's going to be there. That, I started being a hardball, but I was like, wait, I don't have students yet. It can't be hardball until like they're in the class. <laughs> He's already <laughs> yelling at these imaginary I know, I know. members of classes. You can't be a hardball until the cancellation date is passed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> After I've cashed your checks, y'all are going to get it. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry. Class, Dave. Awesome. Well, people can learn about that by going to scoliacademy.com. Uh, Scully also offers a lot of other classes, too. So if you're not in the market for an English class in particular, check out the other stuff that they're offering. But if you are in the market for an English class for 9th through 12th graders that can, you can get credits for, um, which can prepare you for college, which are with a, prof- a former professor as awesome as Tim McIntosh, then you need to take these classes. I mean, I don't think it's likely that there are a lot of college professors as accomplished and awesome as Tim offering classes for high schoolers. Right now. I'm just going to say Thank it. You, Tim's David. my friend. Thank you. But, you know... <laughs> Someone's got to say it, and Tim wouldn't say it publicly. He might say it to me. I might privately. Yeah, you, you might privately. You may privately. You might have privately said that and said to me, "Could you say that on the show?" You might not. You might not have, but you also no, no, might. No, no, no. Pretty sure money changed hands, and <laughs> right, I right, saw right. it. I saw it. <laughs> but t- hey, can I but, say one other thing about the class, David? It's is this before you I tell your story? Of, this is before I tell okay, my story. Yeah. All right, sure. A lot of people are looking at it as a literature class, but a lot of parents and students are looking at it as a history class, and it okay. really will be – it'll both. be both. We'll okay. read the Aeneid, but not as like an isolated literary event, but as okay. part of the explosion of the Roman Empire. Are you interested in taking six-year-olds in this class? Uh, precocious six-year-olds, I would accept. A pr- no, I'm I pretty sure this six-year-old <laughs> in question already knows Latin. So, like. <laughs> Really? Yeah. It's more read it in Latin. The particular six-year-old that I'm referring to knows more Latin than his dad. Let's just say that, or at least <laughs> knows more Latin than his dad remembers, thanks to his grandfather. <laughs> um, the podcast network is also brought to you this month by our friends over at New College Franklin. They're sponsoring all of our shows this month, so a big shout out to them. Um, New College Franklin respects the sacrifices you have made as parents and teachers to educate your children in wisdom and virtue. But how do you sustain this during the college years? 
Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven and liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship. And that's just what New College continues to, to do over in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. They're going to build on the foundation that you have laid. New College students grow in wisdom and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. So uh, if you go to Franklin, newcollegefranklin.org, you can learn about how to come for a preview weekend or just schedule a visit at whatever your convenience is, or you can see all kinds of content over there. Um, If you came to the conference and listened to Greg Wilbur speak, if you've ever heard him on one of our podcasts or heard a recording of his talk or read his column on our website, uh, you'll know that uh, he is a great guy who's very wise, and he is the uh, head of the college over there, the president, and they have just a great team of people all around um, in their program. So I think all three of us would agree that if you are looking for a higher ed, kind of a different sort of higher ed opportunity for your children or for yourself if you're in that age range, then New College mm-hmm. Franklin would at least be something worth looking, worth looking into. Even New College would say Absolutely it's not for right. everybody, but it's definitely worth heading over to newcollegefranklin.org and checking out what they're doing. Okay, so Gilead, Marilyn Robinson. Um, we chose this book in part. Well, actually, Tim, you wanted to tell a story. Should I'll we... tell it quickly okay, so we okay. can get into the book. Okay. Peter Schaefer, one of my favorite playwrights, who I believe is still living, best known for the play Amadeus that was made into oh, a yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. I thought I recognized that name. Okay. Brilliant, brilliant playwright. He has published, I believe, six different endings to the play Amadeus. That's how much he likes to kind of like rewrite his plays. He's never, he's, huh. he's only felt really satisfied, I think with the last of the six published endings. So there's a story that I read about when Amadeus was playing on Broadway. And I think Ian McKellen was playing uh, the role of Salieri, who's kind oh, of wow. the foil to, right. Can you imagine this? Who's the foil to Amadeus. And what would happen was Peter Schaefer would go see the play. He would watch it. He would be dissatisfied with the end. He would go home to his hotel room. He would rewrite the end of the play. At 2 a.m., he would leave the rewrites in the boxes of the two main actors, Ian (laughs) McKellen, and I can't remember who the other was. Here, memorize this in the next two hours. They would wake up. They would memorize it. They would, I think, rehearse it a little bit, and then they would do the new ending. And I think he did that. I hope I'm not exaggerating, but my memory is not exaggerating. Four successive nights on Broadway. And these would be, I mean, this is not like 50-seat houses. These are massive theaters. So they wouldn't wouldn't re-block everything, or they would. Like, they would just, the actors would just have to interpret it. it. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a fun gig. You see, this is exactly where my mind goes when you tell this story. How are you supposed to write a review of that? Like, which play did you just review? Does that play even still exist? Like, I'm getting into all kind of philosophical questions now. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That might be the point behind it, though. Like, maybe that's, he was just trying to... He deconstructed the play. It's yeah. a different play so, every night. It can't, therefore, it cannot be reviewed. <laughs> no one can criticize it. That play doesn't exist you come, anymore. Yeah. 
And then every so the part of it is like advertising, like it's easy to advertise. Let's see how Amadeus ends this week. Yeah, exactly. right. Exactly. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine the conversations amongst people? Well, oh, I saw it last night. That's not how it ended. Oh, I think not. You certainly couldn't good. do this with a movie. Although people do rewrite the ends of their movie, but once it's out to the public, it's and then out the to the DVD public. And the comes right, out, and you right. argue about which one was the real ending. Yeah. yeah, it's like so. Tim and I both love the book, All the Pretty Horses, right? Um, one day we'll probably do it on close reads if enough people are interested. And so, Billy Bob Thornton, the actor, made a movie version of it. Have you seen it, Tim? I have seen it. So, Matt Damon's in it. So, the movie, yeah. I think, the theatrical, re- theatrically released version was like two hours and ten minutes, maybe. Mm. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton's version was close to four. Mm-mm. Yeah, and um, he, they basically stripped it completely because they were like this is too long and meandering and like too reflective and too contemplative and like no too much way. yeah and so they basically pushed a, a whole bunch of it into what they wanted and now billy and they and since then they've realized their mistake and my understanding is they've tried to get billy bomb thornton to release a director's cut but he's so mad about them that he'll never release a director's cut because he doesn't want them to make no any money way off of it. yeah <clears throat> and apparently the d- people were like thrilled with the director the original version the really long one and it probably wouldn't have been four hours but it probably could have been three and right, it could have yeah. been, you know, like there will be blood or something. <laughs> um, you know, just sort what a of shame. Yeah, cause, and now the movie now is like just very mediocre, in my opinion. Yeah, very so, mediocre. I agree. Considering the story itself, and they yeah, focus way more so on the love fun. story in the movie than in the book. Right, right. So, like so, they yeah. basically just took Classic the love Hollywood. Right, they, they just Hollywood. took the love story part and they made it into, you know, into the movie, and they didn't. They left out a lot of the other stuff. So, yeah, and a lot of just like the contemplative part of Cormac McCarthy's writing, the like contemplating on the nature of the West and the wild and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. well, anyway, speaking of contemplative, um, Gilead is, is that for sure. Um, she wrote this in, uh, well, so Angelina, you were saying you don't know anything about Marilyn Robinson. Um, Tim, what do you do know? Not. What do you know about Marilyn Robinson? Very little. I know that she published housekeeping a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And that Gilead, everyone was looking forward to her publishing a follow-up. I think she published Housekeeping in the 80s. Um, and everyone was looking forward to Gilead when it came out because it had been so long. And it's kind of funny because since she published Gilead, it seems like she's coming out with something more and more frequently. The yeah, so- other thing that I know about her is her book of essays, The Death of Adam. Mm-hmm. My friend Rick Levine, whose taste in literature is wonderful he he said it should just be mandatory reading it's the mm. it's the path forward and i was like really whenever rick says something like that i kind of i pay attention mm. but i've not read the death of adam i haven't read those essays that guy's gonna get 472 friend requests tomorrow you better watch out yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right so yeah so housekeeping marilyn robinson published housekeeping in 1981 um and then kind of went off the publication map for a while i believe mainly she was raising children during that time but mm. she... okay that makes sense then because i feel like i would have heard about her in my women's lit class which was very like joyce carol oates and margaret right. atwood yeah. and mm. yeah. so she would have been a contemporary of them but i never heard of her yeah so she was also i mean she's been teaching at the university of iowa and the writer's workshop which is kind of the 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 preeminent when, when the Connor, pre- sure. yeah. right, pr- creative writing school in the country so she's been teaching there for a long time. She did release, as you said, uh, two books of essays before this came out. So 1981 was when Housekeeping came out, um, which was about two women, young women living in Idaho. Um, and that's all I'm going to say for now. You should go read it if you want to. Um, came out in 1981. And then 
she had two books of nonfiction, uh, including Mother Country, which came out in 1989, and then Nothing Until the Death of Adam. And then this was in 2004, and it ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize and was, was a huge deal. Since then, she's released a couple of different... She's released two follow-ups. There's a trilogy. That it, the Gilead books is a trilogy. The second one is called Home, which came out in 08. And then in 2014, she released a book called Lila. Um, and all the there's the same threaded characters throughout. So Home hmm. is a book about... Uh, in this book, in the first 37 pages that we've read so far, um, Ames refers to his friend Boughton or Boughton or whatever, the, the other minister. And Home is yeah. about his story and his daughter Gloria and their son and his son Jack and like their family story and drama and unfolding and all that kind of stuff. It huh. also is told from the perspective of it's actually told from the perspective of Gloria the sister and so it's a little bit of a different story but it's about uh Boughton being at the end of his life. And then Lila um is is the one that came out more recently and is the story of um I think it's. Do you want to say? Yeah, uh, probably not. Actually, <laughs> just just bear with us, and you'll learn who the story of L- Lila is about. Yeah. Um, Tim, for someone who knows nothing about Marilyn Robinson, you sure know a lot, because <laughs> you're all like, well, yeah, my, I know. It's very superficial. If you press me on anything, like he he looked at the first paragraph of of Wikipedia. <laughs> right, right, right. No, that's about the the depth of my knowledge. Um. One of the reasons we chose I this. I thought is that, about reading about her first, but then I made a conscious decision to do a completely cold read, which I do not normally do. So this is an experiment. I'm curious to know how it's going this far. I'm not so sure Marilyn Robinson is actually a woman. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I need some documents, some confirmation on this. Well, so this, it's this interesting. Does not read like a woman. It's interesting that you say that because when we were talking before the show, you also said. Um, that it felt like Jaber Crow a little bit, like from the very beginning. Oh, totally. First line, I was like, and this is Jaber Crow. Which might mean that they might just have more to do with the fact that they're both sort of um, this lyrical, um, mid-century mm-hmm. American, like writers Lyrical's that grew up. Lyrical definitely in, the word in this mid- I would use. And they grew up in like rural mid-century America, right? Um, <clears throat> or came of age, at least during that period. So maybe that impacts their writing. Um, very lyrical first person narrator right. um reflecting on their life very meandering like right. you know it's it's clearly just so jaber's meandering in the sense that it's like following the river and he's got all of that but here he's just like following the way random thoughts kind of yeah. connect and go here and there and make you think of something else and yeah and i read it like so for those who have not quite read the chapter yet it's it's just the 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 John Ames is this minister. He's got he's 76. He's got a very young son. So he's nearing the end of his life and he's saying I want to write back tell the story of my life to my son. So he writes these letters. And every time there's a section break, I read that as like that's the end of that letter that he wrote for that night. It's almost like journal entries. Oh. So the structurally it's really interesting cuz as you've noticed if you've spent any time in the book at all, there's not chapter breaks, there's not customary customary markers of things like that. Um that make it easy for us to figure out how much we're going to read, for example. Mm. But those section breaks do something really interesting because you can easily stop at any of them and think, okay, so maybe he went to bed now. Like, why yeah. did he stop there? Why did he pick it up where he picked it up the next day? Um, and so it's like letters, but also it's like a journal. And so I think that's one of the things we can talk about as we're going through the book. But a lot of people love this book. Um, I, I like this book a great deal. And when we were talking about different 
different books to do next, I was noticing on the Facebook page that a lot of people were talking about Gilead and it kept coming up. So I thought, let's give it a shot. Um, yeah. Let's talk about it. So we're going to do that for the next several weeks. Eventually, I'll post a reading a reading schedule, but we'll do approximately 30 pages or so, uh, give or take. We may speed that up a little bit depending on how it's going because it's a pretty quick read overall. But Angelina, you mentioned Jaber Crow. One thing that people say about Wendell Berry a lot is that he, like in his novel Hannah Coulter, it's amazing that he oh, can yeah. write from the perspective of a woman so well. And here you're saying it's amazing that Marilyn Robinson could write from the perspective of a man so well, or that it doesn't feel like it's written by a woman. Can you go into why you feel like it's not written by a, man, a well, woman? Okay, so so first of all, it might be a little unfair for me to say that because, I, I, I mean, I am aware. Um, this was something we always talked about in, in graduate school, about how many uh, books by women are about male protagonists, and you, don't not, you do not see the reverse very often. Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is that they argue that women can – Women can write about men easier than men can write about women. And I don't, you know, that was just the the standard, um, you know, line of explanation. I don't know how true it is or not. So, I mean, I, I do think it is nothing short of a miracle that Wendell Berry can get inside the mind of a woman, especially at different stages of her life, as Hannah Coulter is. Um, I guess it helped that he was in his 70s when he wrote it. So he had a lot of life experiences that he could tap sure. into. And he'd been right. married for a long... I mean, I, I'm just saying maybe that helps a little bit. Like, I couldn't write from the perspective of an old woman very easily unless I have, like, you know, take some certain kind of pills that, you know, put me in the right <laughs> frame of mind. <laughs> even then, I'm not so sure. You could pull that yeah, off. No, I'm pretty I don't sure even I... know if women understand the mind of women. Okay, <laughs> I'm just going to really go out on a limb here. But Well, I'm glad uh, neither you nor... Neither me nor Tim said that, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I get the liberty of saying these kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I you guys will have to tell me if it sounds like an authentic male voice. It's It felt authentic to me as much as I'm able to say that. It does to me, too, for sure. One of the things what do you am, think, David? Well, I was going to say one of the things that's amazing about her writing in this book, just the craft of it, is that she can make it feel authentic on so many different levels. Like it feels authentically man or masculine or whatever you want to say. Like it feels, it feels that way. It also feels authentically like an old person. It does feel old. Um, she is as of 2017, August, 2017, she's 73. I don't know when her birthday is. Um, so if she wrote, if it was published in 2004, she would have been 60 when this came out. So she was probably in her fifties as she was writing this. Um, mm. So that's old enough have experiences but it's not like it's the same thing as someone who's 76 which her character right, is right it also feels authentically historically old like before they right. she gives you the numbers yeah. and you figure out when it's actually written when i started it i was like oh i don't think this is set in the present day right yeah yeah it also feels authentically like pastor right it feels authentically Very. midwest it feels Very. authentically authentically rural like she captures all these elements of his voice in a way that is really I mean, there's lots of great writers that capture voice, but she does it on so many levels to such a high degree that's just very unique, very, very rare. Um, and I think one of the things that's going to be fun to focus on is how that voice plays out and how she, the choices she makes as a writer play out in her interpretation of his voice. Um, that'll be something to, to look at as we're reading, I think. You know, And, and just one more thing on this. Uh, Marilyn Robinson did a an interview well really it's a conversation with president obama in 2015 i don't know if you guys read this you can find it easily uh, in the new york times it was in the new york times book review and um 
she tells the story of this book because he says, how do you come up with these characters? And uh, she says to him, well, I, I'm, I, it surprised me too. I didn't expect to be writing from the perspective of a man. But she was visiting her son and it was Christmas time and she was waiting for him to get to come pick her up or something. So she's at a hotel and she just sits down and this line, this first line of the book comes to her and she starts writing and it takes off. And that book ended up becoming the first thing she felt, first piece of fiction that she felt comfortable, I guess, publishing in, you know, 23 years or whatever. So it even surprised her in a sense, which I think is really interesting. She didn't set out to write the story from the perspective of a man. I think that's yeah, really, I huh. think that's really interesting. Fiction, I think fiction writers that feel like that a lot, right? I mean, Tim, do you ever feel that way when you are writing a play or something that the voice, it's not like you can't force it to come to you. It, it seems to be like, I mean, there's a muse or something there that's inspiring. Oh, you. absolutely. Yeah. The trouble for me is that the muse comes and it always like takes, <laughs> it goes in a direction that is not really, how to, how to say it, it flies off the handle for goodness <laughs> sakes. You know, like I'll, I'll have an idea for a character or for a scene and four hours later, I've written a really good scene for some play that I've never worked on before. You know, it's just yeah. it doesn't conform to the actual play that I'm working on. So. So maybe the great writers, the greatest writers, like the very greatest writers, they can harness the, the muse, I guess. Yeah, that's right. It seems like they can. Or, I mean. I have heard that Cormac McCarthy is working on seven books at a time. He never is working on one book. He's always working on seven books at a time. So I wonder if, you know, something about the mood of a particular character or plot line infects him and he runs with whatever one of the seven that he happens to be infected by. Hmm. That, that would be so hard. Just all the different voices in your head and the different styles. Oh, and all that. goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tim, what were your first impressions of this book? Angelina says, you know, I can't believe it was written by a woman and it felt like Jabra Crow. What were your first impressions? It feels so melancholy. It's, it's sad. It's deeper than sad. And I don't even really know why yet, aside from the obvious problem, the obvious fact that the main character the minister knows that he's dying or thinks that he is or thinks that he's dying expects that he's going to die soon it's and yeah his relationship with his son is it, yeah melancholy it's hmm. deep to me it seems deeper than sadness and not melancholy um depression sometimes people say i'm melancholy and they mean you know, something more like they're depressed i mean something just deeper than sadness so Deeper than sadness in what way? Like, what, what exactly do you mean? It, it strikes me, and again, we're only 37 pages in, it strikes me that there's something about the main character looking back at his life, and it, it feels like there are so many things now that are unchangeable and unmovable to him, and... So it just it feels like all of the regrets in his life are now kind of coming home to roost and there's nothing to be done about them. Um, 
No, I felt the same way reading it. You know, I, those are the same words I used to, the, to looking back on his life and seeing all this loss and regret. But I mean, I just called that sad. I'm not sure. I'm just I'm trying to understand what you're getting at when you say it's deeper than sad. Um, I'm so let me think. I'm moving away from Eugene on Wednesday. I've been here for 10 years. I'm really sad about it. I'm going to miss all my friends and I'm really sad about it. But there's not a sense of finality about it that this book, at least thus far, feels like there's just a sense of finality about what this man is enduring. Um, And so I don't, I mean, I am so groping in the dark here because it's so early on in the book and I genuinely don't know anything about where we're going to go. It feels like, um, the regrets that he feels, I'll say it like this, leaving Eugene where I've been for 10 years and missing my friends and missing my students, it makes me sad, but it's not undoable. I can see them again. I can come back and I can visit and our relationship will be different, but, but it's not, um, a sadness that nothing can be done about. Whereas this sort of sadness feels like, or what I'm calling melancholy, feels like the die has been cast and you can't undie the fabric now. Can can I ask two follow-up questions? Mm. So I, it's interesting that you say this because this idea that this is a sad book is, it's not how I've ever read it. So for me, I'm going to have to work huh. through, I'm going to have to process this. Um I'm going to have to, you know, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try to think about it and, and see if I, fe- if I feel that way. Because for me, I, I, maybe it's just that I don't, I'm focusing on the wrong things or the wrong passages. But now that, it, now that I'm saying that, like as you're talking, I realized, is it even possible to have a book about someone who's reflecting back on the end of their life for it not to be melancholy? And does mm. that make it necessarily sad? Like are, me- are melancholy and sad necessarily bad things are the same thing like he and and then here's this follow-up question to that that i was going to ask you both have mentioned the word regrets now i don't personally read these first 37 pages as him looking back on all the things that he regrets having done Mm. where do you guys see that well i mean maybe that's not something we should talk about right now maybe we should wait but is that how is that what you mean by regrets or do you mean more like he knows he won't be able to be there when his kid's like 40 he, and he regrets that. I certainly, I certainly mean the latter, um, that he won't be there for his son. But I think that there's something not about the specific memories that he's raising, but there just is something about the tone. Yeah, it's yeah. Tone. It feels so. Help me, Angelina. How do you how do you describe the tone? Uh, what? How do you say the word L E E L E G I A C? Oh right. Elite. I've always said elegiac, but I don't know what I'm talking about. No, but that is the form of of Beowulf, right? It's actually Tolkien said it's not an epic; it's an elegiac epic, and and uh-huh. so it's and it's funny that you said that because while you've been talking, I've been thinking, no, it's the same in tone as Lord of the Rings, which is the same in tone of Beowulf, which huh. is essentially the tone of the passing of time and things are passing away. Yes, there's so, this yes. deep loss and deep sadness. Yes. Do you look back oh, at? So do you Sorry, look at David. that? Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say Beowulf, at least I, I have only read the Seamus Haney translation, but Be- that translation of Beowulf is, it is so similar in tone 
crazily enough, as this book. I mean, completely different languages separated by what? We think Beowulf's roughly 700, maybe a little bit more recent than that. So separated by 1,300 years. And there is something both feel in tone like they're elegies. That was mm-hmm. a great observation, Angelina. No, yeah. And so I guess that's what I mean by regret. Not that it's a laundry list of I wish I had been around more when you were a kid, kid, but mm-hmm. but just more that it's over. Uh-huh. You know, my my time as your dad is over and well, I mean, he does talk about things he wished he had done differently. Like, I, n- I never realized I was going to be leaving a wife and child, and I wish I had provided y'all with something. And he says that a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, I mentioned this to you before we started, because you guys haven't read it before, but one of the things that this book is about is about how unexpected things happen to him. Like, he's lonely for a long time, and then what, and how that changes. How he, mm. kind of, how he like comes out of that. Like, how things that he thought were never going to change, change for him. Like, how sadness has turned into joys and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so when, and that's when you look back at a life, it can't help but have so many of these different kinds of things you look back at. Right. I remember when my grandfather was dying and we were up there visiting him and I was very close to him. I was, went to college because I could be a couple of hours from him. And one of the things that we would talk about all the time was just, you know, there's the things you regret, but there's also the joys, the things that were unexpectedly, amazing in your life and then i think maybe that's where i those are the things that i'm looking at in the book and so yeah for me, like mm-hmm. so okay in his book review for this in the new york times in 2004 in the sunday it's the, the new york times sunday book review james wood the reviewer called this book fiercely calm <laughs> do you is that what, what you're getting great, at the idea of that it is being fiercely calm yeah, it is calm. I would agree with that. He's telling all of this in in a calm way. But I mean, so like, there's this the, the, one of the first stories he tells, right, is a childhood memory of going with his dad on this adventure. But the advent, the quest is to find the grave of his grandfather. Like, just on so many levels, that's just it's sad. It's so it's you you've got this over overriding sense of loss because what they are going to find, even when they find it, is a dead body, right? the marker of a dead body. They're not even going to see the dead body. They just want to somehow know, right? Um, And so even though it's kind of like humorous at parts and it becomes kind of a running joke between he and his dad, but, and, and so, but uh, how does he say it in that one line where he says, uh, Oh, what is the way he puts it when, when you realize the incredibly foolish choice you have danger, you've put yourself in. After you've already put yourself in the danger. When his dad gets shot at. Right. Right. And so there's there's all there's just a real heaviness here. Like the stakes are life and death. This is a this isn't Huckleberry Finn telling adventure stories of the time he you know, Mm -hmm. he and Tom Sawyer go off and play pirates on the like there's a real threat of death here. People are starving. There's a drought and a famine. They don't have food to eat. They're looking for they don't even know why they're on a quest to find their dead grandfather. It's just sad on a multiple levels. Yeah. So I, yeah. Okay. But what about all the stuff? Like he constantly is talking about. So, I mean, there's, I think five references to the mystery and wonder of people laughing just in these first 37 pages. Oh, yeah. So he says, for example, on page five, it's an amazing thing to watch people laugh the way it sort of takes them over. 
I wonder what it expands out of your system so that you have to do it till you're done. And again and again, he talks about the idea of, of laughing. He talks about seeing the two young the two young guys who are smoking and they've got the oil all over them and he can't believe they don't set on fire and how they have this joke and how he like just like loves that they have this joke together. And then he talks about the young couple that's walking and the guy shakes the water on them, on the girl. Yeah, but the overriding sense of all of those observations is I'm about to die and I'm never going to laugh again. I had and, the same thing. I had the and same that feeling. is what both Tolkien does and the author of Beowulf. Like I, I talk about, I, I, I literally had a conversation with someone yesterday about about this in, in, in Beowulf and Tolkien both, right? It, it's, a, it's a very deliberate, stylistic thing. That's why I love that we've somehow fallen onto the word elegy here for, for the form, which is that even in the moments where you're rejoicing and you're happy, you're always being reminded that this is not going to last and mm-hmm. doom is coming. So, so in Beowulf, you know, they're like, yay, we killed the monster and let's all raise our glasses to peace. And right there in the very next line, the author of Beowulf is saying, but in this meat hall that they're having this great time, it's going to burn to the ground. And then this feud's going to break out and they're all going to be dead. And so don't get too happy because death is coming. None of this is going to last. And that's how I kind of feel about the tone of this book, that even the happy tender moments are over. (laughs) So I don't. I don't two things. I don't disagree entirely. Also, I don't really mean to be debating with you on this. Uh, oh, it's I, <laughs> but one I'm of the things more that, than happy to have someone say you're just overly sensitive and you think everything no, is no, sad. No, 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 that's no. That's true. <laughs> no, no, no. Like I'm not saying there's not sadness to this at all. Um, but I keep for me as I was reading it the second time anyway, or this third time or whatever it's been, I kept being struck by the way he was saying there's sadness, this is going to be over. But the moments that I had that were happy were inc- incredibly meaningful. Like he, there's that line where he says something like, you were too intent on the cat. Remember when they talk about the baptizing the cats? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And he's like, telling the story and um, he says, you were, I, I can't remember, I think maybe his dad said it or something. You were in too intent on the cat to see the celestial consequences of your worldly endeavors. Mm. And he's constantly tying like these small things in our lives to like um to to their spiritual consequences to their eternal consequences and many times in a way that is like joyful like um and maybe this is just me not wanting to be melancholy i don't know but but he seems to be drawing like in in suffering in sadness like we can't as we're suffering or as we're starving or whatever you can't lose sight of the joys that god does give us yeah I don't know. I agree with that. No, I agree with that. And I don't mean to suggest that I don't see that in the book. I see it in the same sort of way that I see it in the Lord of the Rings, where the joy and the sorrow is all mixed together and the victory and the loss are all mixed together. And that's just the reality of this life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Lord of the Rings comparison is interesting and one I never would have thought of between, like I would have never naturally thought of to compare these two books. Tim, you were going to say something. Well, I just wonder, David, part of the reason maybe you're not reading it is sad is because it does seem like this man has lived a good life. You know, he has, there's something about the way that he views the world that sounds commonsensical, but it's not really commonsensical. It's more plain spoken. It's, it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful Mm -hmm. way of seeing and being in the world. And that's something that, that, what a wonderful thing to celebrate, to be happy for. To that point, do you guys read him at this? So it's very early in the book, obviously, and a lot of stuff we haven't gotten to a lot of the stories of his life, just a couple. 
do you see him as being at peace at the end of his life? Like looking back and saying, I've done the best that I could. I've tried to be faithful, all those kind of things. And he's at peace with it. Or do you see that he seems to be revolting against the end? I, I think he seems peaceful. I, I think the very act of writing the letter is peaceful. Mm-hmm. That's how it read to me. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I don't get the sense that he's raging against the dying of the light. Mm-hmm. Right. It seems that there's something that needs to be said, though. That he something needs to come out of him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So that's why he's. You think that's why he's sitting down to reflect like this? He's trying to get to the meaning. It's like it's more than just giving something to his son to hold on to, like something. Tangible. Yeah, yeah. It seems like he. It. it, uh, it I don't want to say it's a, apologia pro vita sua. It, it's just it feels like there is like he's pregnant. That's the thing that keeps coming to mind, is that he has to give. It's a. It's not an appropriate metaphor because he's an older dying man. But it <laughs> I was like gonna say something... this is a seventy-six-year-old dude who's pregnant in your in your imagination here. <laughs> I wish I had a better metaphor. I just grabbed the first one that came to There's me. There's a lot going on in that metaphor. <laughs> But it seems like there's something that needs to to come out of him um, and be delivered in some way. And I don't know what that is. It's just as I have a f- sense of foreboding, not not being haunted, but just a sense of foreboding that something is on. Something will be revealed or told beyond just this is my life and son, I want you to live a good life and I hope you remember me. I feel like there's something else that needs to be stated. I would say there's also the theme of redemption coming out of loss. I can see that. I think that's why he makes the parallel between always imagining the daughter who died mm-hmm. and where she would be and what she, and then, so yeah. then the other woman comes and it's a very similar moment. Um, you know, there's this active redemption in the world about loss hmm. and it's unexpected and it doesn't come like you might think it will and doesn't look like you think it will. Yeah. Well, and that's that's where the um, okay. This is that's a good point. So he's preaching, right? By the way, one of my favorite lines in this whole book is when he's like, "You know what? I just counted up all my writing, and I just realized oh, I'm more. Yeah. I've written more than <laughs> Thomas more than Aquinas Augustine. and Augustine. <laughs> yeah, Augustine and Calvin. Yeah. And by the way, on a side note, sidebar, we'll talk about this more. But uh, Marilyn Robinson is a huge John Calvin fan. Um, not like in the popular sense, but she has read his works word for word many, many times. And she says that we, the modern Christianity does not understand John Calvin. We read it through mm. the lens of all his interpreters. Um, she also thinks that the Puritans got a bad rap for the, for the way they interacted with American culture and create, helped create it and stuff like that. So some of those ideas do come out in her work. So that's just something mm. to keep an eye on. Yeah. But you know the scene when he's, the woman, he, his mother, the boy's mother, his future wife, walks into the church and he's preaching um, yes. So it's, he, let's see, I'm going to, it's on page 20. This I think is, let's see if we see if it speaks to what you're saying to Angelina. Um, so she's talking about how she, his mother's proud of her books and all that. Um, she, okay. So your mother walked into the church. This is the end of 19. Your mother walked into church in the middle of the prayer to get out of the weather. I thought at the time because it was pouring and she watched me with eyes so serious I was embarrassed to be preaching to her. As Boughton would say, I felt the poverty of my remarks. And then there's this. Sometimes I have loved the peacefulness of an ordinary Sunday. 
It is like standing in a newly planted garden after a warm rain. You can feel the silent and invisible life. All it needs from you is that you take care not to trample on it. And that was such a quiet day. Rain on the roof, rain against the windows, and everyone grateful, since it seems we never do have quite enough rain. At times like that, I might not care particularly whether people are listening to whatever I have to say because I know what their thoughts are. Then if some stranger comes in, that very same peace can seem like somnolence and like dull habit because that is how you're afraid it seemed to her. Um, and then if you skip over to the next page, at the top of the um he's talking about his previous wife who had passed away. He says, I say this because there was a seriousness about her that almost seemed like a kind of anger, as though she might say, I came here from whatever unspeakable distance and from whatever unimaginable otherness just to oblige your prayers. Now say something with a little meaning in it. My <laughs> sermon was like ashes on my tongue, and it wasn't what I had been worked on either. I worked on all my sermons. I remember I baptized two infants that day, and I could feel how intensely she watched. Both the creatures wept when I touched the water to their heads the first time, and I looked up, and there was just the, st the look of stern amazement in her face that I knew would be there even before I looked up. And I felt like saying, quite sincerely... If you know a better way to do this, I'd appreciate your telling me. Then just six months later, I baptized her, and I felt like asking her, what have I done? What does it mean? Th that was a question that came to me often, not because I felt less than certain I had done something that did, some that did mean something, but because no matter how much I thought and read and prayed, I felt outside the mystery of it. Um, and, and then, so we'll stop there. But there's two things that get me there, like, the idea of gratefulness that throughout the hard times, like when there's not rain, when the rain does come, that this is the grace of God and it's worth being grateful for. Mm. There's a sense of gratefulness throughout this whole book, in my opinion, that displays his faith, that he is constantly, he is constantly, despite the suffering, he's able to have, he's able to experience joy because his faith allows him to see things as grace. And that comes up multiple times, and that's something he seems to have inherited from his grandfather, which I think is why the grandfather is emphasized so keenly in these early chapters. Huh. The grandfather who lost his eye, you know, he fought with John Brown, lost his eye in the war, but then every time, he was always giving things away, right? He was trying to give the dress clothes off the kids' mm -hmm. back and, the, you know, every bit of money or food they had. But for him, it was always, you know, there was always something to be grateful for. And then also... The idea, um, the idea of mystery, that the grace of God works in mysterious ways, and you never know that moment, like when he's preaching, you never know those moments that are going to be transformative, that are going to provide mm -hmm. the grace. And I think, I could be wrong, I could have just gone on the worst rabbit trail in the history of this podcast, <laughs> which would be saying something, but I think that speaks to what you were saying, Angelina, which was like 10 minutes ago before I started reading. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe we should just end now. You guys want to go home? <laughs> oh, good night. Good night. Can I, can I say one other thing, David, that, that I picked up out of those two sections that you read? Yeah. Um, he is seems like he's really compelled by a level of seriousness in his first wife, in his second wife, and in his son. So yeah, yeah. Page, page one, oh, bottom yeah, of the right. first full paragraph. Um, you reached up, he's talking to his son, you reached up and put your fingers on my lips and gave me a look I never in my life saw on any other face beside your mother's. It's a kind of furious pride, very passionate and stern. 
I'm always a little bit surprised to find my eyebrows unsinged after I've suffered one of those looks. <laughs> lovely writing. But that's um, also how, how every husband feels when their wives get serious. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> then he mentions, then he mentions about, um, the mother of his son, what you just read. Uh, she watched me with eyes so serious. I was embarrassed to be preaching to her. And then on the next page, I say this talking about his first wife, because there was a serious about a seriousness about her that almost seemed like a kind of anger. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just something that I kind of tabbed as what is, he finds this so compelling and a little bit alien. Whereas he described, he has bouts of anger himself, but the thing, the seriousness that he's describing, it, it seems like he's really attracted to it in these people in, in his, both his wives and in his son. Um, yeah, I just want to pay attention to where that goes. Why is that so compelling to him? I imagine why it would be compelling, but I'm curious to find out why he's so compelled by it. I think one of the things I like about this conversation so far is that there's been a bunch of questions that we've raised that we can just pay attention to yes. as we read. Yes. Um, let's, let's close. I, I didn't want to go too long on this first episode because I just, I want to slide into this book a little bit lightly. Um, and we'll talk more in depth as we do. You know, we just finished a really in-depth read of Brideshead over the last couple of months. And I thought, let's just do this first episode as a transition and slide in both for our yeah. sake and for the reader's sake. Yeah. Um, Angelina, do you have a question similar, like something you're going to look out for? I've got one thing that I want to mention, but Aww. do you have anything that you just something that there's a question that sprung up or an idea or, or a way he thinks about the world that you're going to look out for as you read? Uh, probably uh, the references to the mysterious and the unknowableness of things. So I, the one line that, that was I mine did too. mark. That's mine too. Oh, okay. So yeah, the one line that I did mark was... Um, it simply states a deeply mysterious fact. You can know a thing to death and be for all purposes completely ignorant of it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So what I do is my quotes that I, that I wrote down. So I keep this little journal as we're reading for close reads and I'll write down two or three questions that I might want to talk about on the show. And then I just write down stuff that I marked, like a few quotes that I think are going to come up just trying to anticipate and I realized that pretty much all of the ones I wrote down are all about how there's some kind of mysteriousness in the universe that is that huh. we're always kind of grasping at. And like the idea of the mystery and faith going together, like things being mm-hmm. a grace, like the when the rain comes is a mystery, right? When the woman mm-hmm. walks into the church is a mystery. Why she would love you is a mystery, stuff like that. Um, why a child and dies that, is a mystery, like and all then this he has stuff. That, that's why he gets rebuked about baptizing the cats. Yeah. He didn't take seriously the, the sacrament, mm, right? That yeah. there's a real mystery going on there. And then he even talks about all what water means. And mm-hmm. can, can I say one other thing before we hang up here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, his, bro- his brother's name is Edward, correct? Is that right? His brother that went and studied. Uh, yes, yes Edward. Edward. Yeah. How interesting that, Edward struck me as the sort of character that Flannery O'Connor would skewer, right? This Hmm. um, man who was trained at a liberal university in Germany, and he comes back and he won't even pray around the table with his family. He's and he uses the Lord's words in a very sacrilegious way, which he knows what he's what that's doing to his family to use those words in such a way. And, 
And the pastor's response to his brother, Edward, is he was a good man. Hmm. I thought, how different, how different than Flannery O'Connor's approach. That's not, it's not a judgment either way. Like how that is very, that is, that is a great point though. So different. Yeah, the, the main character does seem to have a certain magnanimousness. Yeah, right. Yes, yes. He, and, and and I part of me thought that that's just what comes from age and you're at the end of your life, and so you just feel this kind of openness and oneness. Like the idea, like he offers grace. Before. He offers grace to the people and like doesn't he lets them off a little bit. Like he doesn't judge them very harshly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've run across that somewhere else recently, but I can't think where. But. That when you're about to die, you know, you want so much grace yourself, you just hit your feet, you're just throwing it out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess sometimes it could have the reverse, right? People are old and bitter and angry, but he's not. No, he's not. Well, you both mentioned, you mentioned mystery, Angelina. He also is so fascinated by the mystery of relationships, right? Like he has the line mm-hmm. about um, uh a man can know his father or his son, and there might still be nothing between them but loyalty and love and mutual incomprehension. It's like the <laughs> idea that there's there's mysteries in the way we relate to each other, or in you know he says there's this is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention you can give it, um, or the or even like the mystery of faith. It seems to me that some people just go about looking to have their faith unsettled. Um, I, I love that you mentioned mystery. I think that's going to be a great thing to just keep an eye on his his views on that and the way things the way he either accepts mystery or tries to sort things out seems like when you're old i mean we're doing that our whole life but it seems like it'd be natural when you're old to be trying to unravel all the mysteries of the universe that have just been confronting you your whole life and the, so which ones can you unravel and which ones do you just have to have faith yeah so when he has that imaginary you know when he has when he imagines what would it be like if my dead daughter showed up and he says that he he, he thinks he would just wither under her looking at him because she would know the reality of all the yeah. truth that he was grasping for in this sermon. You know, yeah. he feels yeah. so yeah. unworthy to speak about things that she obviously knew. So there's definitely that sense that beyond the veil is where the real knowing is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's, I think we've done, I think we've done our duty for this week. <laughs> Um, Pried over the box. I'll just say an odd, an odd coincidence, you know. So his daughter, they name her Angeline, and he says, "No, we were going to call her Rebecca." My name is Angelina Rebecca, and that was just huh. really weird. Huh. Really? Yeah, that's my name. I'm that just going to say I didn't know that. I did. <laughs> I didn't even remember that Angeline was the name of the daughter when we talked about. It. I mean, it wasn't until I reread the book. But well, that is very interesting. The universe is sending me a message. <laughs> that is definitely the way that I read books. Like, my, there's my name, clearly. Angelina, the, the universe is always sending us messages. I know. Of all I, sorts I, I, and I just kinds. send them a perpetual busy signal when they try to <laughs> contact me. Well, as he says, right? This is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention it, you can give it. <laughs> well, um... Thanks to you both for joining us. This, as Tim just said, what did you say? We've unpried the box? Yes. We've peeked in. Um, and, you know, hopefully this will be a good conversation. We'd love to hear from you guys as listeners on the Facebook page or wherever you want to send us messages. Um, what are your first impressions if you haven't read it before? Um, are there any passages that you love from these first 37 pages? Um, anything that we did not talk about that you were yelling at the, your iPhone or whatever? <laughs> talk about this. Talk about this. Um, oh, you know that was happening. Yeah, of course. But we can only talk about so much. Um, but of course, you can and always. You really 
you can never predict where these conversations are going to go. When we started, I did not think we were going to end up with Beowulf and Lord of the Rings. I know, that's, I know. I, that's why I used to like try to be a little more scripted, and now I just write a few questions. I write two questions down and a few quotes. <laughs> as long as I've read, you know, maybe we'll be able to figure something out. Um, even then, you guys could, if I just stand here and go, what? You guys would probably be fine. Probably better that way. Um, well... Tim and Angelina, thanks again, as always. Thank you to New College Franklin and to Scully Academy for sponsoring. You can learn more about New College over at newcollegefranklin.org and about Scully Academy and Tim's classes that they're doing or that he's doing with them at uh, scullyacademy.com. Do either of you have any final thoughts or anything you want to say by way of saying goodbye? Do we know how many pages we want to read for next time, David? Let's do through let's do page thirty eight through sixty eight because we I mean or thirty seven or whatever through page sixty eight so about thirty pages again does that work right works great yeah. for me yeah Angelina oh you'll be in Aruba yeah I'll be in Aruba Araba huh <laughs> Araba if you do not do this next episode with a fancy drink in your hand with an umbrella I'm gonna be very disappointed. I'm planning on it. What's the, I want to like hear the umbrella tinkling around in your glass. Like, I want authenticity. Oh. Have you ever seen Dumb and Dumber? Yes. yes. So whenever someone's going to like a fancy vacation spot, my little brother, he'll, he's always like, ah, Aruba, where the wine flows like water and the women flock like the salmon of Capistrano. <laughs> Man, one can... One cannot mix a metaphor more heavily than it was just mixed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's a line from Dumb and Dumber, so which happens to be one of my dad's favorite movies. I'm just going to end yes. the show right there. It's one of my dad's yes, favorite it movies. Does. I know when you asked us if you saw it, I almost said, we know your dad, therefore yeah. we've been yeah. forced to watch it with him. <laughs> yeah, but if you watch with my dad and then talk to him for three hours, he might convince you it's actually good. I don't know. <laughs> Um, anyway, anyway, we probably should go ahead and end, but, uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening and, uh, thanks to, uh, everyone who's been reviewing and leaving comments and subscribing and all that kind of stuff for Angelina, for Tim and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell from the, uh, here on Close Reads and the Cersei Institute podcast network. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.